This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Welcome to the Bible Line. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. For the next hour, we'll be taking your questions. And if you have a particular question from God's word as it relates to your life or ministry or study, and you'd like to call us, you can locally. The number is 843-525-1859. We broadcast through WAGP.net around the world. And if you're in the United States and you'd like to call us at our toll-free number, it's 877 877- WAGP 980. We also have a phone app that you can download. And if you go to the app store and type in WAGP, you'll see the light phone app. Well, Rick, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, we welcome our first caller today. Indeed we do. Uh, Actually, it's a dictated question. So um, it's Jennifer who writes from Mount Pleasant. Uh, My husband and I moved to Mount Pleasant in January. We visited various churches, but cannot seem to find a church where God is calling us to become members. I was wondering if you knew any good churches in the area. I'd like to stay in the Mount Pleasant area as we have young children, including a baby. I like to be an active member, but one who stays on schedule with my children's school and the baby's naps. Therefore, driving a far distance at this time is not feasible. I would really love some help. Well, it's a good question. Here's the biblical principle that has to dictate our behavior. The Bible says that we're not to forsake our assembling together, as is the habit of some. Now, the reason the Hebrews were forsaking their assembling was not typically the reasons we do today. Basically, it was persecution. You identified with the church at large, and it meant persecution. It meant your business would be boycotted and so forth. But still, the principle is timeless, not to mention all the positive commands in the New Testament where God expects us to be an active, functioning, uh, contributing member of a local church. So for a Christian not to be assembling with born-again believers is ultimately disobedience. And so the question is not if, but the question is where. Now, it is true. Sometimes you go into a community and you don't find a church that is as strong as you would like it to be. It's not as healthy as you would like it to be. And I've lived in some places like that when I was not a pastor, but serving in pastoral ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ. So I found the best church that I could go to, encouraged the pastor, prayed for the pastor, and did what I could to serve in that capacity. Uh, In the Mount Pleasant area, there is a decent church. It's more Calvinistic than I certainly am, but nonetheless, they're Bible-believing, they're gospel-preaching. It's called ECBC, stands for East Coop. Baptist Church, that's probably going to be your best bet to go to ECBC, East Cooper Baptist Church. That's where I would probably start. Uh, Look, there's a place where you can serve there, where you can grow, where you can learn God's Word, where you can worship corporately. Uh, No two Christians probably agree on every jot and tittle that they read in the Bible, but on all the essentials, they're right on and they're solid. So that's where I would begin. And, And if someone's listening to me in a part of the country where there are not any good churches, then you ought to pray about helping to plant one and start one and see if God 
God would use you or someone else with you to pull that off? Great question. Let's go to our first live caller, Rick. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Carl. Um, Kind of a caveat off of uh, your sermon last Sunday, which was an excellent sermon. Um, as As a father of a young family, how can we be preparing ourselves, not just spiritually, but our children and as a family be preparing ourselves for uh, what very well could be the demise of our country. And kind of just, I mean, yes, you know, going along with the, everything you were touching on in terms of our responsibility to praying for our country, evangelizing, um, you know, working, praying for revival. But what if that doesn't happen? What do we do then? Um, it's kind of, you know, how do we prepare ourselves now for what could be something like 1938 Germany or Europe during the 1600s when the Puritans came here? And um, I'll go ahead and take that question uh, offline. Thank you very much, Pastor. All right. It's a great, great question, and it's an important question because we know ultimately there will come a time. We should pray for revival, and that's why I kind of ended the sermon saying, let's let's pray for revival in the U.S., but if we can't have one there, let's have one in South Carolina. If we can't have one, let's have one in Buford. If we can't have one in Buford, well, let's have one in our church. Well, if we can't have one in our church, let's have one in your heart. It ultimately comes down to the individual, but we know— There have been times in human history when God's people have cried out to God. God sent a first and second great awakening and tens of thousands of people across our nation were converted. Uh, That was a miraculous movement of the Spirit of God. But we know ultimately that God is not going to send a revival that ultimately God is going to send his son from heaven because Jesus revealed that in the Olivet Discourse. That as we move to the last of the last days and to the end of the age, that men's hearts will grow cold. That in, in one of the one of the reasons men's hearts grow cold is because the church is weak. The church is complacent. Men will love darkness more than they will love God. You see, one of the functions of a bright church is it dispels darkness and it preserves righteousness. We act as salt and light. And so God warns us that there is coming a time in human history when that is all going to change. And he tells us specifically when he writes to Timothy, the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, and the term latter times is a little bit different from the term last days, but it refers to the end of time. And it says uh, before the second coming of Christ, that some will fall away from the faith. Of course, it's articular here. So it's not just from faith, but from the faith. And, and if you've been with us in our study of Romans, we recently looked at that expression and we saw that it refers to the body of truth that it was delivered to God's people. I just preached a, a sermon from the book of Jude, did the whole book of Jude in one sermon. And uh, Jude talks about us contending for the faith delivered once for all. Well, people are going to depart from that. And when you depart from the Bible, the faith, apostolic doctrine, it's always replaced with some other kind of doctrine, some other kind of teaching. And of course, here he mentions deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons and so forth. That's our day. Uh, We're seeing this lived out in our day. Um, Paul also warns that in the last days, difficult times will come. 
Now, again, technically, according to Acts 2, we've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost. When the miracle took place on Pentecost, Peter stood up and said, well, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. And so we've been in the last days and that the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ, that he could come at any moment. But I believe that we've moved into the last of the last days because Jesus likens the turmoil that will come to a woman in labor. And so when there's always been wars and rumors of wars and famines and floods and natural disasters, but like a woman in labor, they will increase in frequency and they will increase in intensity. And so when he describes the last days, these things are much more pronounced even today than they were 30 years ago. And I'm not talking about a limited geography here. I'm talking about worldwide. I, I, I was in India a couple months ago. I saw these things in India. I was in Greece earlier in this year. I saw these things in Greece. I was in Ukraine. I saw these things in Ukraine. Uh, wherever I go, I'm seeing these things and they're growing and they're increasing in frequency and intensity. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They hold to a form of godliness, so they've denied its power. And so God tells us that these things are going to increase as we move to the end of the age. So, yes, you should pray. That's critical. Uh, We may not be a Democrat, but a Republican, we pray for Democrats. We may be a Democrat and not a Republican. Doesn't matter. God calls us to pray for all who are in authority. We are to Uh, We are to speak up, we're to pray up, and we're to clean up. We we are to make sure our hearts are clean because God hears the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, not someone who's just positionally righteous, but someone who is practically righteous. So we need to guard ourselves in these days, and we need to prepare our families. How do we prepare our families? Number one, you need to be in a good church with those who call upon the name of the Lord, Paul says to Timothy, with a pure heart. So you don't want to hang around with apathetic, lukewarm Christians. You find the very best church you can get in and get involved with committed Christians. Those are the kinds of believers you need to expose your children to. You need to prepare your children for persecution because in this day, as a believer, they are going to be opposed. I remember my daughter five, six years ago, she was a um, residential advisor at Clemson University, and they do this RA training. And my son, uh, Jameson, who's currently serving in that position, that's the same training, but it's gotten even more intense. So when my daughter five or six years ago there at Clemson, she's sitting through this training and they're talking about, you know, how we are to be uh, sensitive and you know, accepting of the gay lifestyle. And they asked the students, uh, there was probably about 80 students, if I remember what she shared with me in the class, all future or currently serving residential advisors, how many personally thought that homosexuality was morally wrong? And my daughter was the only one out of 80 people that stood up. Now, a few Christians came up to her after and said, you know, I should have stood, but I just felt pressure and 
And so you talk to the average college student today, for instance, and you ask them if they think homosexuality is wrong. The numbers between those who are 45 to 65 and those who are 15 to 35 are dramatically different. They have a whole different view on this lifestyle. And even in the older generation, it is beginning to change and it's breaking down. So if you are a young freshman at some university, you know, uh, the state of South Carolina just withdrew $52,000 from one university because the, the freshman reading last year was how to be a lesbian in 10 days. That was the freshman reading for the incoming class. Your tax dollars paid for that. Um, That's the attitude. That's the mindset all across America. And so your children need to be prepared. They need to know that persecution is going to come. And for you to stand up, you need to recognize there's going to be a price paid. And so you go through the scripture that speaks to persecution. I'm not talking about being persecuted for being obnoxious, but for righteousness sake, And you help your kids to be prepared for that. You prepare them for the liberalism of our day that questions the authority of God's word and its infallibility or the new hermeneutic, the principle that they are using to interpret the scripture where they twist what the scripture says. Listen, if the plain meaning makes good sense, don't seek any other sense or it becomes nonsense. One of my professors at Dallas Seminary Dwight Pentecost used to tell us that all the time. He just went home to be with the Lord about 60 days ago at the age of 93, still teaching the word of God. If the plain sense makes good sense, don't seek any other sense. Otherwise, it becomes nonsense. And so there are Christians who are reading the Bible in the, I, many of them are just pseudo Christians and they're coming up with stuff. He said, where do you get Well, That's deep. Listen, um, it's deep because it's often distorted and it's made up and it's invented. And, and it's the kind of thing that Paul warns Timothy about in first Timothy. So, um, we need to prepare our kids for the day that we are living in. Now it may get better, but it may get far worse and they don't need to be taken off guard. And we as dads need to watch over our own hearts with all diligence. Like Paul tells the Ephesian elders, in the, uh, as he gathers with them, it begins with you as leaders, and you could take that principle and apply it to the head of the home. It begins with the dad guarding his heart, the kinds of things that he listens to in terms of music, the kinds of movies he watches, the kind of internet sites that he visits, because there is immorality, and it's everywhere. And people are becoming anesthetized to it and accepting of it. And when you let your standard down, you weaken your children. So we need to have our guards up and we need to prepare our kids for the day we live in. And one of the best ways you can do that is for you yourself to walk passionately with God. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at wagp.net. David from Ridgeland writes, I was listening to a broadcast on May 20th, and you were speaking about man being appointed once to die. How does this work with those in the Bible that Jesus and the apostles resurrected to say that they were not truly dead takes away from the miracle, but to bring them back means that they die twice? Just a little confused. If you don't mind, I would value your opinion. 
Well, it's a good question. Uh, Paul, uh, the writer of the Hebrews, we don't know that it was Paul. In fact, I don't think it was Paul, but nonetheless, uh, the writer of the Hebrews says it is appointed for a man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. And so the question is, well, if a person dies just once and then he's judged, how do you deal with people who are raised? Well, let me first say there is a technical distinction between a resurrection and a raising to life, um, because you use the term here, resurrection, in reference to, um, uh, did they mention Lazarus? No, just uh, the fact that the apostles resurrected some people and Christ did. And of course, they both did. Uh, there's a number of resurrections or raisings to life. In the Old Testament, Elijah, of course, raises the widow of Zarephath, and Elisha, the Shunammite son, and and there was one other, uh, I was trying to remember, oh yeah, Eliashib, um, the prophet, uh, someone's, or uh, excuse me, Elisha's tomb, someone's dropped into his, uh, into his grave, and the guy, he, he's given life, and he, he pops right back out alive. He was dead, but he's dropped in his tomb, and he comes out alive. It's pretty amazing, but... Uh, and then, of course, the Lord in the New Testament raised three different people, the widow of Nain's son, the Jairus's 12-year-old daughter, and, and Lazarus, of course, being the most spectacular. Peter raised one lady named Tabitha, and Paul did as well with Eutychus. With all that said, there is a technical distinction between being raised to life and resurrected. A true resurrection uh, brings a person to a state of new life. Um, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he was not resurrected from the dead. He was raised back to life, having been dead for four days, but he was still in his fallen, uh, created body that was subject to death. And he died again. And he's buried in some tomb over there in Israel, where when you're truly resurrected, there was a total transformation into a fundamentally new body as Paul teaches in first Corinthians 15. And so Lazarus and these others all returned to their existing corrupting body. So in the technical sense, he was not resurrected. He was raised from the dead. Lay that aside. If it's appointed for a man to die once and after that comes the judgment, how do you deal with some of these exceptions? And there are, you know, again, a number in the New Testament and a number in the Old Testament. Well, I would say it's an exception to the rule. The fact that Christ, say, walked on water. Or the fact that um, Elisha made the axe head float. That, that's a defiance of the law of gravity. But it doesn't overturn the law of gravity. The law of gravity is still functioning. So if I jump out the window on the second floor of this studio, I'm going to hit the concrete below and I'm going to be smushed. Uh, I can't eliminate the law of gravity. If uh, you get pulled over by a police officer... And he decides to say, well, I guess I'm being generous today. And I know you were doing 85 and a 55, but Rick, I'm not speaking to you, am I? <laughs> and uh, and uh, I'm going to let you go. Uh, that doesn't change the law. And it doesn't change the fact that there's still a fine that exists. Well, God is the author of all law and he can make an exception to the rule because God is God. He can change the appointment time. Um, Hezekiah had an appointment time to die and God decided in his sovereignty to change the appointment time. And he gave him another 15 years. Uh, interesting when it says it's appointed for a man to die, it's not anthropos, it's anthropois. It's appointed for mankind to die. It's actually a plural in the original Greek new Testament, not man, but mankind. And so he's giving us the general rule. It's appointed for mankind to die. And then the judgment and to take the, um, 
you know, three exceptions in the Old Testament and the uh, five in the New Testament and to say, well, the Bible is either contradictory. No, it's just God making an exception to the rule. So um, anyway, great question. It's good, thoughtful question. Let's go to the next one. I think someone's just called in and dictated there. So let's go there. They did. They were a bit confused about the message you gave a few weeks ago where you were teaching on apostates from the book of Jude. The caller was unclear if an apostate is someone who has to have accepted Christ or if an apostate was someone who had not yet accepted Christ? Yeah, good question. So um, if you want a more detailed sermon on it, I preached 14 sermons on the book of Jude years ago. Um, And I did one sermon on that particular Sunday, our anniversary Sunday, talking about staying the course and being aware of the fact that apostasy is not decreasing here in the United States, but it's increasing at a rapid rate. And there is being much that is really setting the stage for the apostasy that we're seeing. And it's beginning to enter into evangelical churches. But an apostate is someone who is never saved. He was someone who was outwardly Christianized, but never inwardly born again. And the Bible speaks of such people and gives us numerous examples. Um, And so these are people who come into the church, and the reason Jude warns us that we are to watch for them is because certain persons have crept in unnoticed. How do they creep in unnoticed? Well, they creep in unnoticed and that they look Christian, they smell Christian, they talk Christian, they walk Christian, but they're not Christian. And they end up falling away, apostasia. They apostatize from the faith. And so we speak of the apostasy. Um, And they're very dangerous because they come in among us. There are apostates who draw people out of the church, but then there are people who come into the church. So you have, you know, a a Brian McLaren who um, he spoke at a major evangelical conference years ago in New England. And people were calling me, what did I think? I said, I I think they need to have their heads examined. This guy is an apostate, but he looked Christian, talked Christian. Now he's, you know, in favor of homosexual marriage and all other kinds of things. And, um, you know, he's denied the substitutionary atonement of Christ, but he was a leader in the emergent church, still is, which is a very dangerous movement, though the definition can be somewhat porous, depending where you live in the country. Overall, it's a very dangerous movement that has departed from historical Christianity. So an apostate is someone who has never truly been saved. There is a parallel chapter in the Bible to the book of Jude, and it's 2 Peter 2. And uh, when Peter describes such people, um, he speaks of these apostates, for if they had escaped the defilements of the world... Uh, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them. According to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. 
And so Peter is describing people who have been salted and lighted by the church. They come into the church. It's the person Jesus describes in Luke eight thirteen in the parable of the sower. They believe for a while. They receive the word with joy, but in time of testing or temptation, they fall away. He's describing in the parable of the sower in the first three soils, people who've never been saved. But the interesting remark that is unique to Luke's gospel is that he describes that they believe for a while. And of course, every time the term believe is used in the New Testament, it's not always used of saving faith. There are people who intellectually believe, who think with their mind, but they've never with the heart responded to true, genuine salvation. And so there are people come in and they, they get cleaned up on the outside because of the influence of the church and some quote unquote commitments they make, but that's not being born again. And so for a period of time, they've escaped the defilements of the world, but because they've never truly been converted and said yes to Christ as an act of the will, it's only in the head uh, they go back into the world and he describes them like a pig. You know, you can clean the pig up for the country fair and get them all ready and spiced up and perfumed up. But when you bring him home from the fair, he's going to go right back into the mud. Why? Because his nature has never been changed. And an apostate has never had a changed nature. Let's go to the next caller, Rick. Indeed we do. Let's go to him now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I was listening to Point of View yesterday, and one of their guests was Warren, I think it was Warren B. Smith. He uh, wrote a new book called uh, Another Jesus Calling, and it sort of went into more detail of what you uh, put out in your blog on uh, Sarah Young's Jesus uh, Calling. Yes. Uh, He's, uh, I guess, a self-described former New Ager now a born-again Bible-believing Christian, and he said that reading that book, it was very alarming to him, talking about how uh, it's putting out another Jesus and how Satan uh, will use that. Uh, It reminded me of another article I read online where they said that the latest uh, battle ground uh, on uh, same-sex marriage is now Christian books and bookstores. Apparently, there are a number of Christian, so-called Christian authors who are putting out books that are supporting same-sex marriage and, and trying to show where the Bible is supporting it as well. Uh, the writer of the article ends by saying that if it tends to go the way of those supporting same-sex marriage, it could almost put, you know, all but you know, destroy the culture war. I was just wondering, uh, with these two stories, uh, what does that tell you about, you know, just kind of adding on to what you were saying about us being in the last of the last days? I mean, I know we're not to give up, we're to pray, uh, we're to keep obeying God, but ultimately we know that one day it's going to come to an end. I was just wondering what you thought on these issues. Well, it kind of goes back even to the prior question about apostasy. There is coming a great apostasy uh, that will show itself when the Antichrist comes on the earth. And the professing church who have never truly been born again will totally turn away from the faith. So when Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, 
um, he reminds them, though the persecution was thick, and they thought, well, maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe this is that horrible persecution that comes at the very end of time. And Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness, that's one of the titles given to the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, and so forth. So there is coming a great apostasy, and the seeds have been sown, and a lot of the sowing has been done in evangelical churches. How so? Because we have adopted a form and style of worship in the Sunday morning worship services where we've catered to the so-called seeker. And in the name of evangelism and wanting to win people to Christ, which is a high and mighty goal, we've sacrificed clear biblical teaching as to what should take place in a worship service. And so you have people like Rick Warren and Bill Hybels who created a model that created huge growth in a short period of time. But listen, I meet a lot of those people because we minister to folks from the military that come in from all over the United States, and they come out of those very churches and other seeker churches, and some who have been involved, some who have been members, and so forth, and they don't even know the plan of salvation. But lay that aside, even if they are truly reaching some people for Christ, they are helping to destroy the body of Christ because on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, that God calls his people to worship. Um, The principle of one day in seven set aside. We live every day for the Lord. That's a given in the New Testament. But the, the model of a New Testament Sabbath, if I can use that word loosely, is still in place. And God's people on the first day of the week are to gather together. And in the pastoral epistles of first and second Timothy and Titus, God gave us a clear picture as to what is to happen. Things like preaching and teaching sound doctrine, something that these churches don't do in the Lord's day. Now, in their defense, they'll say, well, we do this on a midweek service. So a Willow Creek that might have 15,000 come on Sunday, they have 4,000 come on Wednesday. And most of the 4,000 that come aren't even from Willow Creek. They're from the greater Chicago area because the Wednesday night service is virtually gone in America. And so they do their teaching then. Well, listen, the Lord's Day is when people are to gather. It's when most people are able to gather, and we are to teach them sound doctrine. But when we do not do that, we open the church up to error. So a Sarah Young's book, which is a bestseller, yeah, that man was absolutely right. And if uh, someone is not familiar with why it is in such gross error, go to searchthescriptures.org and click on the blog post in a year Two ago, I wrote a, an evaluation of the book. It's absolutely horrible. It's the same kind of mentality that the cults have and that it becomes extra revelational. And so it's viewed as very spiritual. You know, God said this to me and God said that to me. And, you know, and it's almost like a dictation. That, that's what Joseph Smith and all these other cult leaders have done throughout time. Every cult is based on either a dream, a vision, some book, some extra revelation beyond the scripture. And we are adopting that mindset in evangelicalism by the thinking of people like Sarah Young. Um, in addition, yes, you're right, because the church is undertaught today, and people, you know, have family members who are gay or this or that, and, you know, and they love their family, and you should, um, and you should love homosexual people, but 
still sin. And God made it very clear, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, the promise that follows is, and such were some of you. But God can save anyone, obviously. So we're to have compassion on the fornicator, the adulterer, the drunkard, the homosexual. Doesn't matter. Our churches are to be opening and welcoming, but not compromising. So now we have on Christian presses, and this just started in April of this year. So Multnomah Press brought out a book on gay Christianity. It's unbelievable. And there are three new releases that are coming out here in the next uh, 60 days. James Merritt Jr. just wrote an article on it that's worth uh, Googling, right? James Merritt Merritt Jr. Gay Christians, and you'll see some of the books that are getting ready to come out. These are on evangelical presses that are going to show up in evangelical bookstores that are a defense of why you can be a Christian and be gay at the same time. Um, listen, this is very dangerous, but the church is untaught. They're uneducated. They are no longer grounded in sound doctrine, emotion overrules. And of course, in any culture where there is heterosexual promiscuity, it always follows by homosexual perversion. That's Paul's argument in Romans one. You might want to listen to uh, a sermon. I preached on that when God gives up a nation and God gives them over to a depraved mind. One translation renders the Greek to an upside-down mind. And that's a beautiful picture because when you start calling right wrong and wrong right, that's a depraved culture. That's a fallen culture. And that's where America is fast going. Let's go to the next question. All right. We have a live caller standing by, but uh, we did also get a question from somebody who wanted to know uh, if you'd ever heard of the book Jesus Calling, which you had just addressed. Yes. That is, of course, uh, uh, your opinion on it is all At the website. At the website, yeah. searchthescriptures.org under the blog And section. all I do on the blog is I just go through the, the, the statements that the author makes in the introduction. Don't even get into the depth of it. Just deal with the introduction and there's heresy after heresy just in the introductory pages but most christians can't see it because they don't have a sieve in which to put their thoughts through namely the holy bible all right thanks for holding you're on the bible line good morning are you there Uh, i think we lost them maybe so you can call back if you wish let's go to the next dictated question that's come in all right very good um Oh, they're back. Oh, go they're ahead. They're on line three. three. Yep. All right. Sounds good. There we go. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Go ahead. Thanks for calling today. Okay. Um, yeah, kind of ironically, I had a question about um, Sarah Young in that book and how she sort of talks about experiencing the presence of God and um, that intimacy with sort of that mystical feeling and... I read your blog, and I thought it was really well written and really good points. I agree with a lot of it, well, all of it. But my my question would be, I've read some books uh, like A.W. Tozer and men like that, where they sort of talk about experiencing the presence of God. And my question to you, do you think there's a slight difference in what people like Christian mystics of the past were talking about and writing about? Uh, versus than what Sarah Young is trying to put out today. Yeah, um, certainly there are mystics in the past who have used the term experiencing the presence of God, especially within the Roman uh, Catholicism that were just, you know, really off the wall and bizarre. But there have been people and men of God 
you know, A.W. Tozer and so forth, that yes, um, we as Christians should talk about experiencing God's presence because God wants to walk with us and empower us and fill us. And as you don't lean on your own understanding, but in every way acknowledge him, he directs our steps. And so there is a way in which we do biblically experience God's presence and God's work in our life. Uh, Jesus said, if you obey me, you will keep my commandments and I will love you and I'll be, you'll be loved by my father and I will reveal myself to you. Um, There is a promise. God loves the world uh, in one sense, but he has a special affection towards those who have met him. And so God refers to us as his beloved and in verbal form, it says we are beloved of God. You know, I, I love uh, children, but I have a special love and a fondness for my children. And God loves the people of this world, but he has a special affection towards those who have received the right and authority to become children of God through faith in Christ. And with that said, God wants to reveal himself to us. God doesn't have his favorites, but he has his intimates. Proverbs says that God is intimate with the righteous. And so God wants us to walk with him. He wants to reveal himself to us, but he doesn't do it in a mystical way. He does it through scripture. So as you're reading the scripture, God doesn't give you a revelation. There is no new revelation, but that's really what Sarah Young is doing. So, you know, she has this little dictation thing and she writes it in the first person and Beth Moore and others like her are guilty of the same thing. And the church, again, is so weak doctrinally, they buy into this stuff and they're not thinking people because they don't know what the Bible says anymore. And they make these statements that are on the same level of scripture. That's what we used to accuse Roman Catholics of doing, that it was not sola scriptura, scripture plus. Now we're doing it as evangelicals. Um, And so there's a difference between that and God taking a revelation that he's given in the 66 books of the Bible and illumining a truth that's already there. God doesn't, you know, sometimes a Christian will loosely say, well, I had a revelation. Well, you didn't have a revelation. God isn't giving new revelation. The canon of scripture is closed. But you might say, I had an illumination. In other words, God took the truth that was already there and he brought it home to you and he he awakened it to your mind and heart and showed you, uh, you know, what it was saying or how he wanted to apply it to your life. That's part of experiencing God. Knowing the joy of the Lord, you know, do not be... Be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. God never tells us to get the spirit because it's assumed that we have him. If you don't have him, Romans 8, 9 says you're not one of his. Paul says we have all been baptized by one spirit. The baptism of the spirit takes place at the moment of conversion. So we're never commanded to be baptized by the spirit, but we are commanded to be filled with the spirit. Because while he may be resident in us, he's not necessarily filling us. And if he's not filling us, then in the truest sense, we're not experiencing a close, intimate walk with the Lord. And God has that for us. And it's very, very important that we, we know that. Anyway, it's a great question. I hope that helps. Yeah, it does. Thank you. All right. Where are you calling from today? Uh, Worcester. Worcester, Mass. I thought I detected a Worcester accent there. Good. I'm going to be in Worcester in just a few weeks and uh, for my mother's 87th birthday, Lord willing. So anyway, I love I love Worcester. I uh, was actually born in Lowell, but moved to Worcester when I was two weeks old and um, spent a good portion of my early years there. So uh, anyway. Where did you go to high school? I went to Doherty Memorial High School. 
Okay, I went to Burnco. Oh, Burnco. Yeah, you guys are rivals. So anyway, well, good to hear you, brother. Thanks for calling today. All right, thank you. Take care. All right, let's go to the next caller, Rick. Uh, all right, very good. Uh, Placido from Westfield. I'm not sure which state, writes. That's Massachusetts. Well, that's I also think. Westfield. Yeah. Massachusetts. Okay. In light of James chapter 2, where James speaks of fruit-bearing faith, how can one properly understand the life of righteous Lot and the mess that his wife was in Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Where is Lot's fruit? Well, it is a good question, and sometimes people wondered whether Lot was, you know, saved. And and we know for certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was, because when the New Testament, by the Spirit of God, gives us divine commentary on his life, um, it says, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Now Lot did some foolish things. Lot in choosing the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, why did he choose it? Because the Bible says it was like the garden of Eden And so when Lot looked down, he saw a piece of property that could only be compared, though no one had been in the Garden of Eden. It was long gone. It was destroyed at the time of the great flood at the at the latest. Uh, But, you know, those who lived uh, in from that age in the stories that were passed down, the descriptions were, you know, incredible of what a magnificent place it was. And so they had those oral traditions. And the only place, the only way they could describe this place was like the Garden of Eden. And Lot chose it. And he lived on the outskirts of Sodom. And then he moved before you know it into the city gates. And and in the process, he, he lost his family. Uh, his wife perished. She looked back. But but Lot did have some fruit. Number one, the New Testament tells us that internally he experienced some super turmoil. He was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. And, and the Bible says that his soul was tormented um, every day, uh, by day after day, by their wicked lawless deeds. Uh, but there was definitely some fruit when you just think about his life. Number one, you know, you read in Genesis 13, he's not a boy. I know he's Genesis, I know he's Abraham's nephew, but remember, Abraham is 75 in, in Genesis 13 when Lot, you know, goes with him. And um, he leaves a land of idolatry. So that's, that's a spiritual choice. He's leaving the paganism. And he understands that the path that Abraham is on has its origins in God's word, God comes to him as an old man, Abraham, I want you to leave and move to the place I'm going to show you. I mean, can you imagine what that was like? The Bible says he was heavy in goods. That means he had a lot of stuff. And one day he picked up and he moved. And where are you going, Abraham? I'm moving. Where are you moving to? I don't know. Wait a minute. Let me get this straight, Abraham. You're moving and you don't know where you're moving to. That's right. I'm moving, but I don't know where I'm going. Well, how can you go if you don't know where you're going? God said he'd show me. And so he left and Lot went with him based on what Abraham said. God said he'd show us. And they walked for months and months and months. And they started in Ur of Chaldea. They went around the top of the, you know, Mesopotamia. And one day God said, stop. They had walked over 1,100 miles. And God said, this is the place. And today we call it Israel. And so Lot went from a land of idolatry based 
on a word that God had given to Abraham. And he went with a person whose life was basically defined by God's word. And so he does show fruit, even in the Old Testament, even if we didn't have the commentary that God gives us, he still showed evidences of new life. Now, I know that there are people, and especially under the Old Covenant, before men were regenerated by the Spirit of God, that under New Testament standards, they wouldn't even be considered believers. You know, if a man today was a polygamist, we'd say, well, he's not saved. But there were Old Testament men who were polygamists who were going to meet in heaven. And there was a hardness of heart where under the new covenant, God says, I'll take your heart of stone and I'll turn it into a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you that you might walk in my spirits and they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. That's the promise of the new covenant, something that no Old Testament saint ever experienced. And that's why God could say of John the Baptist, there's no one ever born of a woman greater than John, but someone who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because John died before the fulfillment of the new covenant, the new deal that Jesus uh, spoke of there at the Last Supper, the new covenant initiated with his blood that was won there on Golgotha. So he does have fruit. He does have fruit in the New Testament, tells us as well. All right, let's go to the next question. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, good morning, Pastor. Good morning, Rick. Um, Just a quick question. Do you or have you ever heard of the book, a boy who met Jesus, and I'll take my answer off the line. Uh, I haven't, so um, don't know don't know the book. Um, so I'll get Rick to Google it for me and give me a sheet, and if you call next week, I'll see what I can find out about it. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, our next listener writes, um, by God's grace, he allowed me to identify and escape a cult I was involved with a couple of years ago that follow a self-proclaimed prophet. They believe only those under their prophet are the elect, and the rest will have to be raised in the second resurrection. I am perplexed why more people don't see the folly of their beliefs, but rather in talking with some of uh, over the scriptures, the members oppose and attack me personally, assaulting my character. My questions are, one, what are the telltale signs of a cult? Two, why would God allow these false organizations to appear to be so close to the truth in many ways to cause people to be deceived? And three, how would you deal with a loved one caught up in such a cult that attacks you personally? Well, God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's speaking of uh, false teachers, cult leaders, I suppose you could say, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. And so the devil's, uh, you know, means of operating is not to come, you know, like sometimes he's pictured in a red suit with a pitchfork and, you know, horns coming out of his head, but he comes as a beautiful, glorious, marvelous angel of light, like he's representing God. And if he does that, well, so don't his servants do the exact same thing. And so Jesus warned us in Matthew 7, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then, of course, he tells us in Matthew chapter 13, it's a whole chapter that's dedicated to the kingdom parables. I've just turned there and let me read a portion. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. 
But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said, Sir, did we not sow good seed in your field? And how then does it have tares? And he said, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Well, what do you want us to do then? Should we, you know, go up and you know, gather up the tares. And he said, no, you, you can't do that because if you do so, you'll weed up the wheat in the process. And then he tells us the interpretation. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. God does that today through his church. We are the ones who go out and we are Christ's feet. We are his hands. We are his mouthpiece. We are to go and proclaim the gospel. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. So God warns that this will take place all the way through the church age. In Matthew 13, he is answering the question in light of the promise that God made to Israel in the Old Testament of a kingdom, and in light of the fact that they rejected their Messiah, what now? And so in Matthew 13, he gives us the answer that God has not abandoned the promises that he made concerning the kingdom, but the coming of it will be delayed. And in the interim, in this interim time period that most people call the age of grace or the church age, as God is building his church, God tells us that the evil one is out to take as many people out as he can. So we're not surprised by this. We're not shocked by this because God said it would happen when Peter opens his great chapter on apostasy that I quoted a little bit earlier this morning. It said, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there also will be false prophets among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So how do you refute these people? Number one, you love them with the love of Christ and you live for Christ, walk close with the Lord because the fulfillment that Christ can bring is a testimony in and of itself. Two, you remind them that ultimately everything they believe, everything I believe is based on something. You either read it in a book, you made it up, a friend told you But just because you believe something doesn't make it true. You can believe two plus two equals five. Doesn't matter how sincerely you believe that you're sincerely wrong. And so people who are members of cults believe all kinds of false things with great and deep sincerity, but that does not make it true. And so the question becomes, do we have a a, a basis for believing what we do? And yes, it's the Holy Scripture. And that's why all this error is entering into the church, because sound doctrine is not being taught. So Christians are buying books on why it's okay to be gay as a Christian. They're buying books that, you know, in, in great rapidity with, um, you know, by Sarah Young and others that are just filled with error that is introducing really heresy into the church in a very subtle, quote unquote, spiritual way. But they don't know their Bibles anymore, so they're very open to these kinds of error. Now, realize some cults, too, use the Bible, but they are masters of using it out of context. And so, you know, when you deal, say, with the Mormon cult, Mormons, you know, will quote the Bible. They'll have a copy of the Book of Mormon and the uh, Bible when they come to your door. But when push comes to shove, they're going to tell you the Bible's been corrupted. 
that the only book you can trust is the Book of Mormon. That's what they will tell you. And they are even trained to show you, quote unquote, errors in the Bible. But listen, the Book of Mormon, and the Bible can't both, both be true. In the Book of Alma, one of 17 books in the Book of Mormon, it says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. The Bible says he was born in Bethlehem. They're both not right. And so what are the characteristics of a cult? They depart from six or seven non-negotiables of the faith, the doctrine of the Trinity. Mormons deny that, for instance, by way of illustration. Um, they, they deny the deity of Christ. They say he's just a man, not that he is the God-man. Oh, they may say he's the son of God, but they use the term, he's the son of God, like we're all sons and daughters of God. So they use sometimes the language of historical Christianity. That's what the devil does when he disguises himself as an angel of light, but they redefine terms. They deny salvation by grace. They teach a works righteousness. So they deny the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection to save us. It's not Christ alone, it's Christ plus. And every cult either has a works righteousness, which they blend in with Christianity, or it's all alone by itself. They deny the virgin birth the way the Bible describes it, where God, the Holy Spirit, one of the members of the Godhead overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary. They say God, the father came down in a physical body and had a relationship with Mary. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, they deny the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. How do we know it's true in without error? Well, read my book, How to Prove the Bible is True. Um, that will give you some good ammunition. So the characteristics of a cult, and they're not always personality cults, a Jim Jones, we're going to drink the Kool-Aid kind of things, but many times they are. Uh, but there are other characteristics that cults have, and there are doctrinal characteristics. And so you need to know what the Bible says. And um, it becomes an issue of authority if they say, well, that's what the Bible, I don't believe the Bible. So then you can defend, well, why do we know this is the only book God ever wrote on the planet, that he only inspired this book? And so you have to go back to there, because if the Bible's true, then you can easily identify the error that they have embraced. Anyway, so that becomes the ultimate question. It's like with homosexuality. It's It's an issue of authority. That's the issue. If the Bible is true then homosexuality is wrong. It's not a minority issue problem. It's a moral problem. All right. I think we've got a few minutes left. Maybe we can squeeze in another question. Indeed, we can. 525-1859. And uh, the next question, I, I'm going to give you this other one because I think you can get to this one a lot faster. Um, okay. Let's get to it real quick. Here. A lot of questions have come in. If we didn't get to your question today, you know, we, we'll try to get to them on another week. And, this person would like yeah. to know, is there such a thing as seed faith or seed giving? Uh, no. Um, that's just one of the, again, heresies of our day that's being promoted. Um, you know, sow a seed of faith and reap a harvest of blessing. If you have a need, sow a seed. And they have these little expressions that they use and... Uh, it really originated with Oral Roberts after the Second World War, and he used some verses out of context, the parable of the sower, where Jesus talks about, you know, 30, 60, 100 fold. And so, you know, you give a dollar to his ministry and you might receive a hundred fold back. So you just need to come in faith. And, and you've got folks today that, you know, teach this, T.D. Jakes, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Paula White, Kenneth Hagan, Jesse Duplantis, to name a few, not to mention the Trinity Broadcast Network, not only sponsor this false teaching, but they use it themselves to raise money. And the danger of the prosperity gospel is that it destroys the faith of many, many people and that they're disillusioned 
over what has happened. And some poor people sometimes give huge amounts of money, even their grocery money. And, uh, and then they're left with nothing. And the promise that they were given just doesn't flesh itself out. And it's really, really sad. And of course, if they're in a jam and they call up that ministry, hey, you know, we gave, you know, $10,000 and now my wife's in the hospital and we don't have the money. Can, can you seed faith to us? You know, God will get back to you a hundred times. It just doesn't happen. It's a heresy of our day. It usually works in Western cultures, but it's a misrepresentation of the rewards that God gives. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier. Sometimes the Christian life is hard and destitute. Uh, It doesn't mean you'll be rich and blessed. God may, but he may not. So let's not distort the word of God. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great day.